Father, we're grateful. Thank you for this time that you've granted to us. Thank you for the people in this room. I thank you for uh, the treasure of the topic that we're going to talk about even tonight. I pray, Father, that you would grant us wisdom as we think about your word and we think about how these truths apply particularly uh, to us. They are great truths of the church. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, grant us the grace to have understanding and to have wisdom as we talk about these issues tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Now, as we get started, one of the things that I want you to grasp is when we talk about justification, that's that's a part of what we're going to talk about as we work through these two particular questions uh, for your exam, because this is exam prep. I'm in the right place. Is that is that correct? Okay. <clears throat> so as we discuss, if you have a question at some point, I want you to, to stop. I don't get offended. Uh, I teach all the time, and so it's not a big deal that you interact with me. I have a lot of Asian students, and for them, that's quite offensive to ask the professor something. It's seen, see, seen as dishonorable to them. Don't feel like that, okay? That's a part of what we're here to do is if I don't explain something clearly, I want you to understand. So we'll pause, and I want you to, to grasp what we're talking about. So tonight, we're going to talk about justification. Now, I know you're anxious to get all the information you possibly can so that you can write a, a great essay on this exam. But if that's all you're doing it for, I don't think it's going to be that fruitful. What I really want you to be able to do is to understand biblically what the Scripture describes to us as these great doctrines of faith and justification. Justification in particular, for us to understand uh, deeply what that truth means to us personally as individuals who have been justified by Christ and by the Father, um, and that you would learn that as a truth of, as a pillar of the church, to know that this is a, an absolutely important doctrine. And, and not only that, that it, this would, you would be able to see the connectivity as to why this doctrine is important relative to the way in which you counsel. Because as you think about um, counseling, counseling always has to be connected to what you truly and legitimately believe. What you think and believe, it has to be connected in the way in which you practice in counseling. Because what you actually practice demonstrates what you truly believe, okay? And so when you grasp these particular truths of justification as the measuring stick, it now becomes the lens by which you see a particular person, and you can discern this is an area where they're not founded in justification, And anytime somebody is not founded upon this particular principle, this position of justification, being justified before the Father, this declaration of God on our behalf because of the work of Christ, you begin to see people waffle and waver in the way in which they live. Their emotional stability becomes out of whack. You see it ebb and flow up and down when they're not settled. And what you see is this particular truth of that we have been justified, declared righteous before God, this basic work that he has done settles the soul. And so what you see when people don't understand this fullness of the doctrine of justification and what God has declared on our behalf because of the work of Christ, what you begin to see is this wrestling constantly in the soul. And so as we talk about counseling, this is going to be very relevant. We talk a lot about sanctification in biblical counseling, and rightly so, uh, but equally, this particular doctrine of justification is, is quite important. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through these two basic questions um, f- 
from the exam, question 14, explain what it means to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. When you think about what it means to trust in Christ alone for salvation, that is an exclusive statement, right? Our world today wants to propose a lot of different opportunities and means by which humanity is saved. You have to begin to see these as competing theologies, as competing philosophies with the one primary exclusivity of salvation through Christ and Christ alone, okay? So when we think about Christ being exclusive, in John 14, 6, uh, Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He, what he's doing is he's providing for us this teaching on him, his claim of being exclusive means to the Father, exclusive means to settling and reconciling this relationship between God and man. Jesus is the only means to accomplish that. That's his declaration. Now, as you probably know C.S. Lewis's argument, Jesus is either, either a lunatic, liar, or he's telling the truth, meaning he's Lord. And you have to come to the conclusion as to what you truly believe about that. Now, as we talked about belief, belief is important. But sometimes in our day and time, we think about belief as if it's some sort of just simple intellectual assent. And that's problematic. Why? Because when you think about faith in terms like that, the Bible doesn't ever describe in the New Testament belief in those terms, as if it's just some sort of intellectual assent. What you see connected at almost every turn in the New Testament is repentance and believe, repent and believe. What's he describing? He's saying what comes with belief is action that demonstrates the work of God in the inner man. And so when we talk about the exclusivity of following Christ, it has certain demands. Now, I remember as a child, <coughs> as a young man even, my mom and dad were, were strong believers. They were very influential on me as a young man. And I can remember my mom, my mom's a, an extremely strong prayer warrior, and uh, she would say things like, Dale, just trust God. And I used to get so stinking frustrated with her just saying, <laughs> trust God. I'm like, Mom, what does that mean, trust God, I think as I've, I've grown in the faith and I've grown in knowing the Lord, part of what that means is what God says, obey. Just simply obey. Whether you fully understand why, how, how this works out, why this is good at this particular time, just take the things that you know and trust, obey. It's the same idea of leaning, leaning into Christ, leaning upon Him, walking with Him. The same way that tonight, did you believe that we had a conference? How do I know that you believe that? You're here, right? Do you believe that that chair will support you? How do I know? Because all your weight is trusting right now in that particular chair. You're demonstrating that which you believe from the inside out. So what it means to trust is to know his word. One of the things you see with Paul is Paul describes at the beginning of almost every letter that he writes is he prays that the people he's writing to in these churches will grow in the grace and what? knowledge. Now, why is he saying to grow in knowledge? Because as they grow in knowledge, one of the things that's going to be an overflow of that knowledge is to be able to now practically apply that to where they live. So learning to trust God, trust Christ, trust in him for salvation is to obey what he says, to respond in repentance and faith. So this is the basic idea. Now, as we think through this idea, John 14, 6, it's to the exclusion of three basic philosophies that we see 
uh, magnanimously in our particular culture. I mean, this is unbelievably huge when we think about our culture, pluralism, relativism, and universalism. Now, what, what, are, what do these words mean? Okay? Pluralism, just this basic idea that uh, God is on the top of this mountain, and there are many different ways to get up to God. Okay? Is that, well, if, you, if you're uh, Mormon, you can believe in, in the Jesus that Mormon, Mormonism prescribes, and it'll get you to heaven. If you believe in Allah, uh, as long as you're sincere in your faith, it'll get you to heaven, and so on and so forth. Hinduism, Buddhism, same type of idea that there are many ways to God, just whatever you're sincere with, that's how you get there. You think our culture thinks like that? And so when we talk about what it means to trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, it's to the exclusion of all other means to get to God. Jesus is making a profound statement here. And this profound statement is essentially, I'm the only way, the one sent from God, to know how to get back to him. Okay? Now, this idea of relativism, what is that? Does anybody know what relativism means? Yeah. And so this is how, as culture ebbs and flows, people say truth ebbs and flows. So depending upon, kind of like in our democracy, whatever the majority of people believe in a certain culture, that's what begins to rule the day as being true, okay? And so relativism is this idea that we kind of create in mass or even in and of ourselves what we think to be true, okay? Now, you have to always see when you propose a truth or a truth small t uh, like that, it's in competition with something. What's it in competition with? The claims of Christ. Christ is claiming something, right? And so now to present another truth claim means it's in competition. And both can't be true at the same time. Does that make sense? And so relativism, if you believe in the exclusivity of Jesus, that he is the only way to heaven, relativism is not an option for us, right? To believe that there are many ways, then Jesus is not that big of a deal. But in the Christian faith, when you believe what the scriptures teach, this is why we talk about Jesus so profoundly and so often, right? It's because Jesus is a big deal. And then you think about universalism, all right? This is this idea that we're all children of God, kumbaya type mentality, right? And that <clears throat> Jesus is really a good guy and he's just going to forgive everybody and everybody's going to go to heaven, right? So you think about, is the atonement limited? Yes. How so? Will there be people who spend an eternity separated from God forever in hell? Yes, if what the scripture teaches is true, that is a reality. And so universalism basically says is everybody at some point, whether we get a chance after life or something like that, everybody will get a chance and we're all going to make it to heaven, right? But that says something about the nature and the character of God. All three of these demonstrate something that's contrary about the nature of God. I want you to think about this statement. Everything that you think, everything that you say, and everything that you do makes a statement about God. Think about that for a moment. Everything you think, everything you say, and everything you do makes a statement about God. What do these particular philosophies say about God if this is what you believe? What do they say about the nature and the character of God? Maybe he ebbs and flows. Maybe he's quite like man, right? Maybe he's just a different, better version of us. Maybe that's what we're evolving into, right? So it begins to propose that maybe God is a little better than us, but he's pretty similar to us because he ebbs and flows as culture changes and technology advances and yada, 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 right? 
But what are some of the other statements or uh, statements about the nature and character of God that could be said from these ideas? That's exactly right. That you have your own opinion and it's in competition with God and he's okay with it because if it's true for you, it's true for you and that's wonderful, uh, you do your thing, right? It, these things say something about the nature and character of God, which we see in Scripture is totally opposed to those things, so both can't be true. What, what about the idea of universalism? What does that say about the nature and character of God? This is really important relative to our topic on justification. What does it say about God's sovereignty? Maybe he's not sovereign, okay? What else might it say? Maybe that we as man are. Yeah, it says something about what we believe we deserve as man, right, at root. But what does that say about the nature and the character of God? This is really important when you think, yeah, he has no standards, and maybe he's not just. Because if we believe in this idea of universalism, what does God have to say about sin? It's not a big deal, right? We can just brush it under the rug. I know you didn't really mean it, and so we'll just work this thing out, and right? It really and then it really isn't sin. It's really not an offense against the holy God. Do you see the connection? So all of these things, while the culture proclaims them and says some, uh, pr- promotes these ideas, they actually say something very offensive relative to the, to the nature of the God presented in the Scripture. And so when we think about faith alone, in Christ alone, as a means of salvation, that excludes all other philosophies and theological positions as a means to get to heaven, okay? That's what we're talking about when we talk about salvation. Now, this is important because when you think about the majority of the people that you're going to deal with in a counseling situation, they are looking for a means of salvation. Think about it. What they're trying to do is they're looking for some sort of way to do what? Feel better, right? And they're, they're giving the, presenting this idea of a cause of their particular problem. And then what are they trying to accomplish? Based on what they believe to be the cause, which is actually the doctrine of homardiology, that's the doctrine of sin, that they're proposing this idea of what, what is the cause of the problems of man. And then based on the way they describe what that problem is, what are they going to come up with? Positions of what we would call in technical terms soteriology, which are? positions of salvation. And so what they're doing is trying to remedy what they believe to be the root problem of man. That's always in competition with what God says is at base the problem of mankind. And so when we begin to describe the cause of man's problems in wrong ways, what do we look for as as solutions? Wrong means of salvation. So we come up with an alternate soteriology, an alternate view or an alternate means to be assuaged before a holy God. That's why these doctrines are so important when you think about what it means to be saved by grace through faith and through Christ alone, okay? These things mean something, and they're a big deal. So uh, as we work through this, what does it mean to truly trust in Jesus for salvation? What if I were to say, is knowledge, is just simply having knowledge, is that good enough to live in relation to God? Is that good enough, just having simple knowledge? Why not? Even the demons believe they have knowledge. Now, is it important to have knowledge? Yeah, what does the Scripture say in Romans 10? How can they believe in whom they have not 
heard. So knowledge is important, but knowledge in and of itself is not enough. You have people who have certain knowledge, right? Even the demons, right? Think about King Agrippa. What did the Bible say about him? Paul said, I know that you believe the prophets, right? And then Agrippa responds in Acts, uh, what is that? Something 26 and 27. What's the chapter? I can't remember. Go look it up. Read the whole book of Acts. It'll do you good. Um, What you see as a response from Agrippa is, do you think I would come to salvation so quickly? Right? So he has this intellectual assent. He has some level of belief, intellectual knowledge. But he's not putting that together to place his trust fully. And so it's not just this simple idea of knowledge. It's not even knowledge and some sort of intellectual assent. Because... As you said, the demons, the Bible says, even believe and what? Tremble. I would venture to say that Satan probably knows the Word of God better than maybe all of us in this room. So does he have this intellectual assent of belief? Yes. Uh, But is that worthy of salvation? No. So you can have this type of assent. You can even articulate all the primary doctrines and the explanation of Scripture But that's not what it means to fully trust. Now, in our particular world, in our culture, we raise knowledge up as if knowledge is equal to power. That's the way we think about knowledge. You have to start to get out of that relative to a biblical understanding of what it means to place one's trust and faith in Christ and Christ alone. Because it takes more than this idea of just simple knowledge. It takes more than just knowledge and some sort of assent to it. I think I believe it. It's at least more likely than random chance to why we got here. It's more than that. So what is it? What it means is to truly depend on Jesus to save me personally. Now, what is that? <clears throat> Leon Moore says it like this. He says, faith for John, in talking about, excuse me, the apostle John, is an activity which takes men right out of themselves and makes them one with Christ. Now, what he's getting at, basically, is the idea of what it means to place your trust in Christ to the point to where we see this imputation, this union with Christ occurring, the imputation of Christ's righteousness and Christ's, or your sin is placed upon him. And that's what he's describing is happening, that I'm now humbling myself to a point of belief. I believe in what Jesus has done relative to his work on the cross. Personal trust is not simply belief in facts about Christ. There are tons. I, I, I teach in a, in a seminary, higher education, teach all levels of education from uh, bachelor's level all the way up to PhD. And there are a lot of really intellectual people. And when we go to conferences and we interact with people, a lot of really intellectual people who know a lot of things about the history of Christ, the history of the Bible. They know a lot of things about the stories of the Bible. But do they actually believe truly in Jesus in a salvific manner? that he is the only means by which we enter into right relationship with God. No. And so that's a limitation if there's not true and personal trust. Now, what does that mean? Let me just describe these basic ideas that we see floating all throughout the Scripture. And we're going to have to hurry because we have to go through another question uh, as well. So uh, what does it mean? These are the types of words, and you probably have some notes, and uh, I want you to, I think I changed this up a little bit, so make sure you kind of pay attention here, is you see several basic phrases, okay, uh, of what it means to trust in Christ, to truly trust in Him. Now, what does this mean? Think of 
John, or uh, the idea of receiving him. John 1.12, what does the scripture say? You can look it up. I don't mind if you cheat because you, you need to have your Bible in front of you. What does John 1.12 say? To all who receive him, to them he, came, he, he gave the right to become sons of God. Our language, when we talk about what it means to follow and trust in Christ, to believe in him, we need to begin to start thinking in a biblical terms relative to this. Sometimes we talk about asking Jesus into our heart. Well, and I think sometimes we, we think we know what we mean by that, but that's not the language that you see used in Scripture. I think we have to be very careful in the way in which we use biblical language. What does it mean to truly receive him? This idea that Jesus has done all the work, and you're saying in a very passive way, I receive the work that you've done on my behalf. And what God does is this massive transaction now to where he declares you as no longer a stranger, but now a what? A son. You see the, you see the distinction? And this is all a part of building this idea of justification, that we now become justified people before God. We also see this idea of believing in him or believing into him, okay? Think, take John 3.16. Now, that's a familiar passage, but I want you to pay attention to something because this is really important. Uh, the Greek phrase here is, is really quite important when you look at it. It's pistuo ace auton. Now, I know you probably don't know what that means. The basic idea is that you have faith into, faith into him is what he's saying. Now, th- you can recite it. Recite it in John 3.16. Go ahead. He gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him is how you think about it. Really, that word ace, the idea in the Greek is that you believe into something. What does that mean? What's the difference in belief in him and believing into him? This is a positional statement. I want you to hear what's going on here. This is really a key nuance. I think that's really important for us to understand this. What I want to do is I'm going to use Noah as an expression of what's being said here. Because if all we do is say, believe in him, what am I saying? To have intellectual assent. Do I believe Jesus was a real person and came to the earth, and maybe he did die on a Roman cross? I have intellectual assent to that, right? But is that salvific faith that John 3.16 is talking about? No. Believing into him is, I once was in Adam, now I'm believing into who? Christ. There's a difference. There's a distinction here. Think of Noah. This is one of the uh, what's called a typology of Christ in the Old Testament. One of the things that we see as a, is quite a picture of what it means to positionally be in Christ. 164 times in the New Testament, you see this idea or this phrase of being in Him. One of the most profound places that you see this is Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3 or 4, going all the way down to 12 and 13. Over and over and over again, you see, in him, in him, in Christ, in the beloved, in him, in him. This is talking about a positional statement of essence, who you are. Now, if you understand in fullness who you used to be, as Ephesians 2, 1 through 4 describes, that you used to be, Romans 5, in Adam. And that's a different what? Position. Your essence is different. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you are a new now creation, meaning you once were an old creation, a dead creation according to Ephesians 2. You see? So the picture now is I'm no longer in Adam because in Adam my essence is dead. And what fruit comes from the essence of a dead man? Galatians 5, 19, 20, and 21, right? 
immorality, sexual impurity, and the list goes on and on and on, right? So those are the fruit that come from that essence of a person. So something about the person has to change. And this is what we mean when we describe having faith exclusively in Christ, trusting truly in Him. Now let's get back to Noah. Think about the story of Noah. What was coming to all the people? The flood. Well, we can describe it a little bit more detailed than that. The wrath of who? Which was represented in the flood. So we think about the wrath of God to destroy sin. God relenting, right? And he's going to destroy sin. And how is he going to do it? In the form of this flood. So the wrath of God is now going to be poured out upon all mankind. Now, what's the distinction for Noah and the other seven people? How do do we know they believed in what God said, that he was a preacher of righteousness and that he believed God? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then to the point of obedience. And what did he do? He built an ark. That demonstrates what? Faith. There's a belief. But not only did he just build it, what did he do when the rain started coming? He got where? Into it. Do you see the picture? The New Testament actually uses this as a, as a type, a description of what it means for us as the wrath of God is poured out on all mankind. For all those who don't believe, the wrath of God is poured out on them. So what it means now is we take the means of salvation, which is Christ and Christ alone, and we find ourselves through faith, not through works, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, through faith into who? Christ. Who's doing the work? The ark. The ark is keeping them safe from the what? The wrath of God being poured out. That's a picture. It's a, it's a primary picture that we see of what it means to be one who is now in Christ. So when you think about faith, it's faith now leaning into Christ. What were early Christians called? People of the what? The way. Now, I find that interesting because what it means to have faith is to be a person who obeys what God says. You choose, as 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and following says, He died so that you no longer live for yourself, but now you live for the one for whom... uh, who died for you. That's the idea. Now to be a minister of reconciliation in the same way in which he reconciled you. So now your faith demonstrates that you're going to follow his particular way, the narrow way. Are you following that? That's what true faith means, is now I believe into him. That's the description that we see there. And so believing in him, that's a proper way to think about it. But don't be fooled by that word just because in the modern we think about belief as just simple intellectual assent. John rarely in the New Testament, Paul rarely in the New Testament uses belief as just some sort of intellectual knowledge. Especially when he's talking about salvation, this is always an activity. You believe something, so you do something. This is the way James talks about faith and works, right? Faith without works is what? Dead. Does works save you? No, it's evidence of faith, right? I believe because, or I do because I believe God has truly changed me. Uh, he's reconciled, he's regenerated me. So this is the idea. And then he finishes with this idea. I want you to, uh, somebody over here, look up John six thirty-seven. I want you to read 36, 37. And then John seven thirty-seven <coughs> over here. And then I'll turn to Matthew 11. I want you to see these pictures because this is Jesus offering himself as the only means. And this is a part of what it means to believe, trust, place your faith into him. 
He, he's giving this offer of what it means to come to me. If you like to read Spurgeon sermons, if you don't, I encourage you to learn to like it because they're really excellent. Um, but this is the way in which he often, at the end of his sermons, that he would offer Christ. He would say, if the Lord is calling you, come to him. He would use the same language that you see here, Jesus himself using. Okay, so read. Somebody read John six thirty-seven. So what is he saying? The way to him, the Father gives us to him, but what do we have to do? This idea of coming to him. And in that coming to him, that's not described as a work. It's described as what? An action of faith or belief. Do you see that? That's the connection. Okay, somebody read John 7, 37. So what is he saying? If the Lord, and I'll just tie in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with this, if the Holy Spirit has unveiled your heart, if he's helped you now to see and see the need of your thirst, that you drink of this water, yet you still thirst, but you see that you have a greater thirst that can't be quenched by anything but this particular water. What does he say? Come to me, and I'll give you water that way you'll never thirst again. This is what he means coming to him, this action of faith, putting all of your trust in him. Here's the deal. Let me describe it like this before we get to Matthew 11. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 15. I'm getting it mixed up, where he says, if Christ was not resurrected, we are above all most to be what? Pitied. You ever think about that? Do you live your life in such a way that people look at you and say, if that whole Jesus thing is a hoax, they're ridiculous. Paul is saying that your faith, the way you believe in Christ, so enraptures who you are and what you do in life that people look at you and say, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, they wasted their life. Right? But on the other hand, he says, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, how do we now look at everyone else? We're moved with compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And they're above all most to be pitied. Do you see the distinction? That's what it means to be truly in faith, sold out to Christ, that you're all in, everything that you are. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, we're sunk. That's what it means to be believe into him. He says, come to me. Now, this is a passage. This is dear to me because I think this is the one most connected to what true and legitimate soul care means. It's not, soul care is not professional sitting down across the table one from another. That's a part of it, okay? But really, the church... The church's job, the bride's job, is to do soul care in general. It's her duty as following the head who is Christ, which the scriptures tell us in Ezekiel 34 that uh, Jesus will come. He'll be the true shepherd, Ezekiel 34, 16. He'll be the true shepherd who will come to bind the what? Broken. We see that prophecy fulfilled, described in Luke. And as Luke describes this, this is Jesus binding the broken. Who's the head of the church? Christ. And what are we? The body, the bride, the body of who? Christ. So what should we be doing? The same thing that Christ himself does, which is binding the broken. Do you see the picture? Now, you see this in Matthew chapter 11. I think this is a beautiful picture of Jesus describing what happens here as his offer of coming to him. 
You're familiar with this. This is what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you hear his call? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Actually, this is a very educative pursuit that we want to pursue knowledge of him so that we can grow in faith by obedience to what he has said. And then, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. Do you see the calming effect, true and legitimate soul care happening? And there's only one means for, hum, for the human race to find rest for their souls. This is why when we talk about salvation exclusively in Christ, we talk about he is the only way and he's the only means by which we find true and legitimate lasting rest for our souls. Okay, we've got we to gotta move. Okay, I'm going to introduce you to these ideas because we're supposed to be done at 45, and we still have justification to talk about. So, uh, so we got to move. Okay, what you have to see is that in this declaration of having faith in Christ, two things are almost always linked together, and they're linked together essentially with three words. Sometimes the coupling of these two words, let me see, is there something else? Yeah, uh, I'll just revisit that. Sometimes the coupling of these two words, and sometimes this word by itself, or this word with metanoia. Now, let me describe what these words mean. This is the coming together of two basic things, faith and repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake, uh, to forsake it, talking about your sin, and walk in obedience to Christ. In biblical counseling, I'm certain you're in track two. You've heard the term nuthateo. Have you heard that term before? It's the term from the scriptures, Romans 15, 14, what it means to admonish. That's the word that's typically used. Ephesians 6, 4, what we're supposed to do with our children is uh, to nurture and admonish them or bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It's the same word that's used there. It's a compound word. It has this word nuos in it. You'll see at the, at the end of this word, it's, this is a compound word. It's nuos that's at the end of this. That's, a, that's the mind. That's the Greek word for the mind. In, ad, in admonishing, you're good counselors, in admonishing, what are you doing? The way the scripture describes this particular word is it's a laying the truth upon the what? Mind. It's a laying a truth upon the mind. Now, that truth is laid upon your mind that's in contradiction to the way that you're living. Okay? As a sinner, we're thinking, living in a certain direction. We're walking in our own way, in the selfishness of our own heart. And when someone hears the word, what now begins to happen? That's an admonition to their mind, to their heart. And what begins to happen when repentance comes to a person? When uh, the Bible describes that, that the Spirit of the living God begins to unveil our heart now, almost as the scales are falling off, and now we can see what begins to happen. This idea of metanoia. We begin to see our mind begins to change. And not just intellectually our mind begins to change. We were once walking in this particular direction, now we have this belief, true faith, we're trusting into Christ, and what do we begin to do, right? What is John's call as he's uh, the forerunner of God, the one who is like Elijah coming to tell of the, uh, the coming Christ? What, is, what does he call out to people to do often? And Jesus follows this same statement. What does he say? Repent and believe. That's these two words, repent and be baptized, and repent and believe. Jesus uses this same phrase, repent and believe, Mark uh, one fifteen, he's coupling these two words together. Pistuo is this idea of what it means to believe. This action, demonstrate your faith by what you're doing. Trust into him. But these two things are coupled. 
Oftentimes we talk about easy believism, right? This idea of <clears throat> just believe in Christ, it's a license to do whatever you want and everything's okay. That's not the idea that you get when you talk about salvation in Christ alone. Because with true and legitimate salvation and faith in Christ always comes this idea of what? Repentance, lordship, this idea of now he's going to be master, now he's going to be lord. This is a, a full submission. Think about the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he says, every Christian's dream, what must I do to be saved, right? And so how does Jesus respond to that? Let's pray a prayer. No, I mean, just kidding, just kidding. How does Jesus respond to that? He asks him some questions. And with those questions, what is he driving at? He's helping this man now see what's truly in his what? Heart. And Jesus drives to the point. He says, yes, I've kept all the commandments since my youth. And then Jesus says, do what? Go sell all you have. And what does the man do? The Bible says he goes away grieving or troubled, right? So what's the idea? He did not metanoia. He had some sort of intellectual ascent into Jesus. He thought Jesus might be at least a means to heaven. But once he started to think about what what it meant, there was no true what? Metanoia. He had maybe pistuo but not what we would not call uh, saving faith, okay? That's the difference. Metanoia is this idea of turning. Because of what I believe now, I believe the wrath of God is on me. I turn in that. And then we see this uh, epistrepho, Acts 3.19. Read it, and you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. It's these two words coupled together. Never do you see, this word's only used like two times in the Greek New Testament. Never do you see it coupled with faith. It's the idea that faith already exists. This, has, this word has the idea coupled together of repentance and faith. It's understood that when you have faith, action comes with it. There's a, a brokenness, a sorrow that comes. Read Acts 3.19 real quick. All right, so what's he calling us to do? That's the first word, repent. It's a call out to repent. Turn from your ways. Turn into him. And this is the idea here, which carries with it this same idea of turning around, but it's, it's translated, at least in the ESV, it's translated, turn back. Turn back. Turn away from where you're going because your faith right now is you're trusting in yourself and you're walking the, the wide way. Okay? Turn back. This is the idea of what it means. And faith and repentance, you see, come together in the New Testament. And you see that brokenness. This is one of the things that you, you have to look for when you're talking through, uh, working with someone through legitimate biblical salvation. There should be legitimate sorrow that's evidence of what? True repentance, that they've been an offender of a holy God. They're not just sorry they got caught and sorry for what they did. There's this demonstration that God has unveiled to them who they really are before him, and now they see. Okay. <clears throat> so, now, let's, any questions on, on that particular uh, topic. Hopefully you have enough to write on, at least for a page. I mean, you can do that, right? <clears throat> so a lot you can talk about there. Um, so question 15, and this is maybe a little bit more uh, in, defen- uh, in, in depth, is provide an explanation in biblical defense of justification. Now, these are really important, okay? When you think about these two ideas coupled together, we talk a lot in biblical counseling uh, about sanctification, Okay. What I think is being hijacked in our modern world relative to secular psychology and all these other different means and philosophies is a hijacking of sanctification. 
what people are doing is proposing the way that man changes has options. There are options for legitimate change in mankind. And what the Bible describes is the only way that true and legitimate change happens is through biblical legitimate change, which he describes as progressive sanctification. I also think what's happening, and the reason we get off on the wrong foot, and the reason we still find ourselves in constant emotional and soulish turmoil, is because we have this faulty view of justification. Now, we've seen this historically. This is not new to us. We've just reinvented it and called it different names. How do we think justification happens? Yeah. So one of the ways we think that this happens, I talk about this relative to parenting, right? Is sometimes in parenting, we know we screwed up and we did something bad. And so how do we treat our kid when we know we've done that? What do we feel like we now have to do? Yet we've got to make it up to them in some way. And we parent what I call parenting out of a deficit. We feel like, well, I really messed my kid up, so I've got to do something to kind of make that up. We really think like that relative to salvation. Maybe we come to a place where we recognize we've offended a holy God, but what do we try to do to get out of that hole? What we're trying to do, you see the emotional instability of that? Now, that feels good to us, and why do, we, why do we elect? In different cycles of history, we've chosen to opt for that means of a way to, uh, of a way to God. Uh, we start to do things like uh, trying to be moral and be better because we know we've really screwed it up before the Lord, and so we've got to do some things to kind of even it out to make our, ourselves feel good. Now, does it achieve a good feeling? Maybe temporarily, but what's the problem with that? It doesn't last. And so what do we constantly need over and over again? This pressure constantly that's on me to do what? Good works over and over and over. Do you see the ebb and flow of your emotional and soulish stability? There is none. You're constantly wavering back and forth, up and down, ebbing and flowing back and forth. Why? Because you always feel like there's ground to make up. Is that the biblical teaching of justification? Are works important? Yes, but not for salvation, not for justification. Let me say it like that, right? Yeah, <clears throat> this is a declaration of God. When you talk about justification, this is a statement that God makes. I want you to think about, you're going to hear the distinction between justification and sanctification in a little bit. When you talk about sanctification, this is you becoming in practice what God has declared you in truth. But in order for that to happen, a declaration now had to be made first, do you see? And what is that declaration? that you are now justified before God. And now you become in practice sanctification, putting to death the old Adam man in you, and now becoming like Christ in practice. And what enables me to do that? The declaration of God that you are, even in your iniquity, righteous. This is a judicial statement. This is a legal call by God, the one who is the judge of all the earth and who will always do what is right and what's involved. This is why the work of Christ is a big deal. When we begin to act like we can do works to obtain some sort of level of justification or acceptance before God, what we're doing, remember, everything you think, say, and do makes a statement about who? God. And so in that action, your statement is you minimize the cross of Christ. You minimize the work of the Son of God being poured out on our behalf. You minimize the fact that all the sin was placed upon Him. 
Do you see? That's what begins to happen. That's what you're saying when you live life thinking that you're making up this justifi- uh, justification act of God by your works. In some ways, but do you see how this is uh, fleshly appealing to your flesh? Because now we feel like we're contributing in some way for what we've caused. huh? Yeah, it puts us in some way in control, is now we feel like we, we're at least contributing to it. Okay, <clears throat> But we see the nature and the grace of God in the way in which he even provided this, uh, this Christ for us to pay for our sin. You see, here's the deal, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but man has two basic problems. The idea that we are corrupt in our human nature from Genesis chapter 3, and the second is that uh, we need forgiveness of God. We are guilty before him. And both of those things demand that a holy God do something in order for man to be changed in his corrupt nature and in order for him to no longer be called guilty before God. And what God has done in the action of Christ's work on the cross is this very work of dealing properly with the guilt of man and now the corrupt human nature that we have. Because what does he do in salvation? 2 Corinthians 5.17, Ezekiel 36, where he says, I will take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of what? Flesh. Okay. Or uh, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.17, uh, old man passes away, behold, a new man now comes. You're a new creature in Christ. This is the idea. Now, let's give a couple of definitions or descriptions. Maybe that's better. Descriptions. And I'll show you where these come from. Grudem uh, describes it like this. This comes from a work by Allison. It's called Historical Theology. This is a fabulous book, by the way. I know it's not on your reading list, but if you're into this kind of stuff, it's really cool because he, a lot of people just, when they work, work through historical theology, what they do is they, they start with chronological history and they start from zero and start moving forward and talk about all the people involved and you lose track of all the different doctrines through history what he does is he takes a doctrine starts at the beginning works you through on that doctrine all the people involved and then he takes another doctrine works you through history and so you can keep it all together in your mind you know what i mean this one's called historical theology So here are a couple of ideas. The way I want you to hear the way that these guys describe this idea of justification, because it is a legal act of God. This is what's necessary for you and I to be in right standing before God. This is why it's so important. You hear people say it like this: You've got to get a person lost before you can get them what? Uh, The greatest detriment, in my view, of psychology upon our modern world is the fact that it removes guilt and shame from people. Legitimate guilt and legitimate shame. Why? Because if people aren't legitimately guilty and legitimately shameful for their actions, they no longer need what? You see that? And so that's, it's an offense against the gospel when you think about it in terms like that. So hear what, he, hear what they say. A right understanding of justification is absolutely crucial to the whole of the Christian faith. A true view of justification is the dividing line between the biblical gospel of salvation by faith alone and all false gospels of salvation based on good works. The Protestant distinction, the Protestant Christian distinction of salvation, of all other means of salvation in the world, is that we believe that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone. All other salvations have some sort of means where it's God and man working together to accomplish this work. 
That's the distinction when you think about the Christian gospel. The beauty and the nature of the Christian God to do what was demanded of on our behalf. That's a demonstration of love. The Protestant view of justification by faith alone automatically excludes justification by faith plus what? Works. We see that maybe the most vivid picture historically is Catholic indulgences starting in about 550 forward. The, the very reason, we're going to celebrate October 31st, Reformation Day, right? And with that, this distinction of Luther's 95 Theses, his statement, and what he's, what he's combating by justification, by faith alone, is he's combating this idea of indulgences. What are they saying? You do something wrong, you pay this amount of money, or you do this type of good service and good work, and you say a couple of Hail Marys, and what are you doing? You're adding to the work of who? Christ. And that's the idea that's proposed. But our belief in justification by faith alone negates any other way of thinking about being saved through any type of work that man can do to appease God. Because that's what's happening. It's us trying to appease a holy God that's separate from us. Okay? Protestant theology insisted that justification is a legal act of God. This is one of the better definitions. I want you to hear what he's saying. Uh, insisted that justification is a legal act of God who, as judge, declares sinners not guilty. Now, think about your state in Adam. What are you? Or what were you, hopefully? You were guilty, right? That was the sentence that was poured out on you and all those who were lost, you see? And what he's saying in this aspect of justification is now this is a means by which we can be declared by God not guilty guilty because of the work of Christ. He does so by crediting to righteousness. This is called the imputation, okay? The imputation of Christ where he gets our sin, we get clothed in his righteousness. <clears throat> by crediting the righteousness of Christ to our account, their account. So while they are not actually righteous, God views them as being so because of Christ's righteousness. And all of this is appropriated by faith in Christ alone. This is the procedure by which this happens, by faith alone in Christ alone, okay? Now, I want you to hear how Spurgeon describes this. I love this. This is really, really good. He says, this is a strange fusion. He's talking about justification. There are several sermons that he's done on justification that are just fabulous, and this is one of the, I, I had too many. Like, I just wanted to let you read the whole sermon, uh, but he says, this is a strange fusion of vehement grace and vindicated wrath, Behold how judgment and mercy have linked hands together in the person of the dying, bleeding, rising Son of God. This is the way by which we obtain justification. This is the means by which we obtain justification before a righteous, true, good judge. Do you see how this doesn't alter the nature and the character of God? It actually displays it. This is the way in which we see the character of God displayed most clearly is by believing in this idea of justification by grace through faith. Now, I'm going to give you all these passages, and I want you to look them up. One of the things that I don't want to neglect is I want you to see the importance of justification relative to, the counseling, to counseling practice. Now, I don't know if you'll have to write this on your exam. I don't think that that's all that important. But <clears throat> having this idea in mind and knowing why believing this is important is going to be crucial for you as you move forward trying to help people. Okay? Because knowing how and why people's soul is constantly unsettled before God, feeling the pressure that they always have to do something to appease God, or maybe the reason that they're, being, you know, they're going through such suffering is because God is now punishing them for all these different things. That's an improper view of justification by grace through faith in Christ. Okay? 
So it's important that we understand these. Let's read maybe a couple of these. I'll let you participate. <clears throat> uh, Matthew 12, 33 to 37. You don't have to read the whole thing. Just uh, I want you to read a, a couple of... I'm right here. I'll read it. How about that? Uh, <clears throat> Matthew 12, 33, 37. He says, either make the tree uh, good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the, true, uh, for the tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. The, the good person out of the good treasure of his uh, heart brings forth that which is good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth that which is evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. This idea that he's providing here is <clears throat> what comes out of a person? What's in them, okay? And what's in them is that which makes its way out. And where, where are we justified? By a declaration of God. And in that declaration, what does he do? He makes us new. So therefore, now what do we see come out of us? So it's not by, by I'm justified by everything that I say. What I say is a product of what who I am in essence. If you're in Adam, your essence is a dying person. Your essence is of death. So what's going to come out of you? It's in flesh. So you're going to have fruit of what? Flesh constantly come out. And that's what you're going to be justified by, right? Do you see the, the expression that Jesus is giving here? You can see a similar idea in Luke chapter 6, Luke 8, 18. Paul certainly is one of the best places to understand in fullness this idea of justification. Particularly Romans, in the way in which he describes... You ever read Romans 1 through 4 and just stop? You'll be depressed, right? What does he describe in Romans 1 through 4? Who we are. And that's, that's quite a bad state. This is who man is in relation to God. And he's describing who we are and what we deserve in fullness, right? What do we deserve? The wages of sin is what? Death, right? That's the legal demand for that which we owe. And so in a judiciary form, Christ's death now pays for that. And God declares us now righteous. Let's read maybe just a couple of these. I don't, we don't have to go into too great a detail. Uh, but I want you to have these. You have these in your notes, right? So you, you can go and check these references and, and read those. You'll get a good idea of the way the Bible describes uh, this idea of justification. A couple of really important places. Romans 3, 21 through 28. Somebody read that for me. Go ahead, whoever, just read. So now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there's no distinction. All sin falls short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This to show God's righteousness because He makes a bind forbearance even after their former sin. So what's happening here? Can you describe to me what's happening? How is it that we're justified? He describes it here by what? By a gift of his grace. And what, what is the demonstration? He describes this in Romans 5, 8, that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. This is the gift of his grace on your behalf. Do you get what you deserve? No, this is the great exchange. Spurgeon uses that phrase often to describe what happens here? He says, this is the great exchange where God himself has taken all of what you deserved and placed it on Christ in his suffering. 
and all of what he paid for. What was he, what, what was he drinking in the cup that he wrestled with so hard? He was drinking the wrath of God. And what was, why was he drinking the wrath of God? It was due the iniquity of you. Do you see? He had to pay something. This is what makes God, this is what declares God is what? Just. Because someone had to pay for sin. And him, Jesus, being the God-man, who was the, the debt owed to? God. So you had to have a representative of the Godhead involved. But who also owed the debt? Man. So Jesus being the God-man, 100%, the hypostatic union. Did you hear about that earlier? Yeah. The God-man now becomes the representative in the courtroom of both sides and says, Telestai. What does that word mean? It is finished. This is the idea of what Christ did in paying for our particular sin. And you see how we achieve that here in Romans chapter 3. You'll see more of the same. Let's read Galatians 2, uh, 15 and following. <clears throat> and uh, I want you to pay attention to how Paul in, in different places describes this idea of being justified. Because what he's correcting in Galatians is really relevant to where we are today. Because what he's dealing with in this book of Galatians is he's dealing with adding to the work of Christ. People aren't wanting to necessarily take away the work that Christ has done. They're just wanting to add to it. Trying to, the Judaizers were trying to add to the work of Christ, saying that there are still things that we need to do and accomplish to make ourselves worthy before God. And this is, the, this is the topic that Paul is actually dealing with here. Galatians 2, starting in verse 15. Was it 15? Yes, 15. And following, what does he say here? Okay, pause. He, he's making a declarative statement here. And this is, this is, you either believe this is truth or not. So what's, he's saying there are ways that people think that we're justified. And how is that? By works of the law. Okay. <laughs> this is exactly what the whole uh, idea of Augustine came from a man who was uh, in Pelagius, who was describing the way in which we obtain favor with God is by doing works of the what? law that humanity was not marred enough we at least had some sort of means and ways to get to god by obeying the law and by doing what god would command of us is he does paul declare that we can obtain justification by that means here he's saying no he's excluding that as an option this is not a particular way that we can become justified or declared righteous before god okay keep going By works of the law, what does he say? No one will be justified. So how are we justified? By faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, what does it say? It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is a gift of God, lest no man should what? Boast. What happens when we pursue works as a means of justification? Yeah. Who are we boasting in? We're making ourselves feel pretty good about it, right? Uh, and so... Here's the deal. When we live life, <clears throat> I hate to break the news to you, but the, the scriptures describe us that we're like the flowers of the field. And we grow and we wither and we pass. But the word of the Lord does what? Stands forever. What's happening in our particular culture, 
culture driven by sensuality is we're trusting in that which we feel more than that which is written. See, here's the problem with that, is it flourishes and it flowers, and its glory has but a time when we trust in what we feel. The problem is, is that's not salvific. That's not justifying before God. What's going to happen? It's going to blow away just like the grass will, and just like the flowers will fade. The only thing that will stand is God's Word. So trusting in what God said as a means of true and legitimate uh, justification is the way in which we stand forever, okay? Trusting in what he says. This is the big deal. So you can see that here. And then he says, what, Ephesians 2, 8, what's 10? Do you need to say the whole thing? Yeah, to prepare for good works, which Christ Jesus prepared for us to do. So what's he saying? Something in us changes, the essence of who we are changes, and now what happens because we're different on the inside? You ever, um, how many of you like oranges? Okay, so if I had an orange in this hand and I squeezed the orange, what would come out? Juice, how vague is that? Right? <laughs> what would come out? Orange juice, why? Because it's an orange. You sure something else wouldn't come out? If it does, run far away <laughs> and fast. Something's happening to the world. Why? Because the essence of this fruit inside is orange so when you squeeze it what comes out this is exactly what he's saying when you have faith that is into christ it's not a work that you do of yourself it's a gift of god lest no man should boast now what comes out of the essence of that person when you're squeezed by the suffering of the world now what comes out of the heart what type of fruit comes out the fruit of the spirit it's produced by him as we submit to him okay all right we got to go so James 2, he says the basic same thing. A lot of people, even Luther tried to do this, where he pitted James and Paul as if they believed in justification by some other means, as if James believed in justification by works, and Paul believed in <clears throat> justification by grace through faith, and, and that was a distinction. And what you see is both are agreeing. And how are they agreeing? They're agreeing by uh, justification by faith in Christ alone, and it produces what? Works. That's all he's saying. So don't go and read James and think, I, I think I have to work to get my salvation. Now, what he's saying is your faith is not true and legitimate, salvific, biblical faith if you're not seeing what comes out of you to be the works of Christ that represent Christ. That's, that's a part of the distinction there. All right. <clears throat> so, Augustine, I described that just historically. This is where this idea came from, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And what happened essentially is Augustine is responding to a, a heretical position on uh, man or, or Pelagius's understanding of man and the effects of sin upon man, as if sin didn't fully affect man, that we still had some sort of ability in intellectual assent to still achieve right relationship with God. And what Augustine says is that's not possible. You can hear how he describes it here. For you do not attain favor by yourself so that anything should be owed to you. Therefore, in giving the reward of immortality, God crowns his own gifts, not your merits. What he's saying is God demonstrated his love because of God's character of love. He wasn't doing that based on any meritorious thing for you or for me. He's doing this so that he can, by declaration, declare his glory among people. You see this also historically in Luther. What he was fighting against was 
this complete opposite picture of justification by works. That there are, yes, we don't try to minimize Christ, but we want to add to what Christ has done. But all the while, when you're adding to what Christ has done, what are you doing? You're minimizing the work of Christ. So you see this in in two basic ways. Papal authority being able to say something equivalent to Scripture, uh, and God warns us of that. Uh, Deuteronomy, he warns us, Revelation 22, he warns us not to add to or take away. That's what was happening. So they were adding to the words of Christ, thinking there was another means to God. This is the way Luther describes it. Christian freedom is established by justification by grace through faith alone and not works. Such divine action frees the Christian from the law of God. Now do you see how in Galatians 5.1 fashion we live in freedom now? Because we're free from the what? demands of the law. What was the law used for? What does Paul say the law is used for? As a tutor to help us to see that we were offending God. It's not used as a means to achieve righteousness before him. Your sin demands that you can achieve that righteousness on your own. That's what he's saying. So if works are sought as a means to righteousness, and are done under the false impression that through them one is justified, they are made necessary. He's saying your works then are necessary, uh, and freedom and faith are destroyed, and this addition to them makes them no longer good, but truly damnable works. That's a strong statement, and this is what he's talking about, this legal demand here. All right, last uh, last slide, and then we'll be finished uh, as we wrap up here. Let me give you just a basic definition of justification. Maybe there are two slides, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll finish this up. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, first of all, thinks of our sin as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. When you think about that statement, that statement of uh, God forgiving man, that statement alone that you are now no longer in opposition to God but he has brought you into himself. That's a comforting, stabilizing statement in your emotional stability, if you think about that. The second thing he says is he declares us to be righteous in his sight. These these two ideas of justification and what Christ has done and what God has declared handle the two basic problems that man has. And what are they? The two basic problems. The first is the corruption of our human nature. And how does he do this? By imputing to us the righteousness of Jesus. He takes the, the righteous. So when we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Christ, that's super important. But don't forget his life. What's important about his life? He lived perfect. He fulfilled the law's demands. Do you see that? So this is the, the picture that we see. And so what's imputed to us? How he lived the way humanity was intended and designed to live in God's design. And now that gets imputed to us as if we did it. That's good news. Do you see how the gospel now becomes good news? God declares us not to be merely neutral in his sight, but actually to be now righteous. Do you see now how the corruption of our human nature is assuaged? All the guilt and shame that you bear, which is legitimate, is now taken away because of what God has declared. Justification is God's action pronouncing sinners righteous in his sight. We have been forgiven and declared to have fulfilled all God's law requires of us. That's comforting. I think you'll sleep better tonight. When you truly meditate on these things, listen, when you start to waver emotionally in wallowing in guilt and shame, it's because you're forgetting what God has declared in justification. You need to be reminded consistently of what God has declared. And then it becomes an issue of what? Unbelief. Do you believe what God says or how you 
feel. Which one's going to fade away? And which one's going to stand forever? Trust what God has declared. That's the point. <clears throat> so, and then the second thing is we're guilty or liable before him. And so what do we need there? We need his forgiveness. We need to be granted forgiveness, which was offered through Christ. We have now no penalty to pay for our sin, past, present, or future. That's comforting when you think about it. Uh, next, justice demands that they are to be condemned, talking about us as sinners. A judge who justifies or acquits the unrighteous is unrighteous himself. And so we read that, on the contrary, God is justifying the ungodly, has shown himself to be now what? Righteous. Why? Because he placed all that on Christ. This justification must be a legal declaration concerning our relationship to God's laws, stating that we are completely forgiven and no longer liable to punishment. This is why you can stand before God on Judgment Day and be found in Christ fully and completely and stand there okay because you're in him. Uh, I'll let you read those. Okay, yeah, we've got we to stop. So I'll let you read those. Let me read this final one. This wonderful doctrine, this is Spurgeon again, uh, but is the doctrine of the Word of God. It is the doctrine whereon faith can feed and rest. And when faith, uh, that should be faith, receives it, she says to the soul, Soul, thou art free from sin. For Christ has borne thy sin in his own body on the tree. Soul, thou art righteous before God, for the righteousness of Christ is thine by imputation. This is what it means to be justified by faith alone in Christ alone. We need to, as Spurgeon says here, stop listening to ourselves and start talking to our soul. Talking the word of God, convincing our souls to rest in what God has spoken. This is what Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. You'll find rest for your souls. These are the types of doctrines that you find rest in. So when you're counseling people and they're struggling emotionally and they're, they're waffling in their emotional stability, it's because they don't understand truly who they are positionally now in Christ. Maybe it's because they've not been declared by God righteous. That might be the issue. Or it could be that they've just forgotten this and they're now trusting in their own works to assuage all the guilt that they have. And that will by no means accomplish an assuaging of guilt, a comforting of guilt. This is why this is so important. 